We live in a world of swirling ideas and conflicting values, gossip, lies, and half-truths, coming at us from every direction. The media, internet, Hollywood, radio, even our phones. It can be difficult to discern what the truth is. And with each passing day, we're losing voices willing to tell it. Welcome to The Chaplain's Chair, a thought-provoking podcast about religion, faith, family, and yes, even some politics sprinkled in from time to time. Chaplain care is soul care, and caring for your soul starts with telling you the truth. Whether it's our community, our family, our work, our marriages, or even our politics, I've learned the Bible always offers sound guidance, truth, to help us deal with the many storms of life. And from my chaplain's chair, I try to speak the truth to your soul. So let's have a conversation you can relate to. You can follow this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Anchor FM. You can follow it on Facebook and the website, www.thechaplainschair. This is part two of Practical Christianity here on the Chaplain's Chair, where we're going to continue to examine the answer to the question, what does it mean to live as a Christian? On last week's podcast, we examined offering up our lives as a living sacrifice, which was reasonable service to God. I'd like you to go back and listen to that as a review if you'd like. And in short, it means to embrace God out of gratitude and to live a holy life. Now today we're going to examine the second part of that text that we studied, rejecting this present world and renewing our minds to correct and alter our thinking to a godly mindset. I'm going to go back and I'm going to read the text of these two parts again. I want you to follow along with me. I'm in the King James Version as always. And it comes from the book of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, we did the first verse last week, which was, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, here's part two, what we're going to study today. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, again, Paul continues with his plea, and keep in mind the image of Paul begging, which we talked about last week. It remains in the context, and it's applicable for this week. And then Paul goes on and he explains, well, what should we not do? And Paul says in that verse, be not conformed to this world. Well, conformed, what does that mean? It comes from a Greek word I'm not going to try to pronounce, but it means to twist together, to roll together, to collect, to combine when you use it of men to gather themselves together to assemble, to conform oneself or your mind and your character to another's pattern, to fashion oneself according to. Now, Webster offers a pretty clear definition too. Made to resemble, reduced to a likeness of, made agreeable to, or suited. It's where we get our English word scheme. That's the root of the Greek word. It means to show on the outside that which has no connection with our inner essence. Well, Paul goes on and he explains this. You know, we, we're not to be not conformed to what? We'll go back to the word here in a second. Don't twist yourself together. Don't roll together. Don't combine. Don't unite with. Don't conform your thinking to. And Paul goes on and says, well, don't do that with what? Be not conformed to what? Well, the phrase is to this world. Well, what do we mean by this world? Well, the one we're living in is what the Greek word means. It means the worlds, the universe, a period of time and age, where you're living. Be not conformed to this world, this worldly system, this society that we live in, etc. We look at Webster's definition, which I also like. The carnal state of corruption of the earth. 
as the present evil world, the course of this world. Galatians 1 talks about it. Ephesians 2 talks about it. The ungodly part of the world. Where, you know, Jesus said in John 17, I pray not for the world, but for them that thou hast given me. It's in John 17, verse 21. Now, there's a sequence of time and events that must play out, and though we must walk alongside it, we don't, we don't have to have part of it. And indeed, we're told in this text not to be part of it. Well, there are some observations and reasons for this, and I want us to look at, at some of these things. I'm going to read the verses for you. Well, the first is, the stewards of this age are wiser in the wisdom of this age than we are. You know, we look at the evil wisdom, for lack of a better term, or the philosophies that seem to prevail in our media, in our news. Uh, let's look at some of the things over the last 10 years. We don't want to define what a male or a female is. We have various descriptions and I definitions and identifications of what we had taken for granted up to like, say, 10 years ago. And I don't have to give you an exhaustive list, but you know, you, you look at any sort of testimony. I was watching an exchange last week with a college professor and a senator about defining what a woman was. And the, and the philosophical and semantical hoops that this professor went through to justify the position that a man can be a woman and vice versa is just incredible to me. And I think it kind of illustrates this point. The stewards of this age are wiser in the wisdom of this age than, than we are. It says in Luke 16, verse 8, And the Lord commended the unjust servant because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than their children of light. You get arguing with these people and they have all this lingo and they have all of these long, what my father used to call 25 cent college words, and, and you're kind of left there speechless because you don't know how to respond to it. I, I think that's kind of the illustration that we get here in the Luke text. Here's something I think is very, very important. And I'll offer it as a contrast to the verse I just read. God has made the wisdom of this age foolish. If we seek it, Above the wisdom of God, we too are fools. I'm going to read this, 1 Corinthians 1.20. It says, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Now, go back to my previous illustration. Does anybody think it's just not utterly ridiculous to say, and be considered smart when you say it, that a man can be a woman and a woman can be a man? Or any number of other examples that are used in modern society. Who does not sit back and say that is utterly foolish? Most people do, but people sound very, very intelligent when they dispute the obvious. 1 Corinthians 3, 18 and 19 goes on and says, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. I'm back to that previous illustration. Don't deceive yourself, Paul says. If any one of you wants to think himself to be wise or be smart in this world, become a fool that you may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. You know, God looks down at people that think a man can be a woman and a woman can be a man or any number of other examples. That a, that a person, if they identify as a dog, can be a dog or any number of other ridiculous things. People consider that cultured, progressive. They use the word woke. That you are somehow enlightened if you talk this way. That if you challenge thousands of years of acceptable definitions and understanding of humanity and human nature, that that's somehow a measure of intelligence. And it's not. 
And it says right here in Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Well, God wants us to possess an eternal wisdom, not one that passes away. You know, 1 Corinthians 2.6 says, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. So Paul talks about, you know, we speak about wisdom amongst those that are perfect, but we don't speak of the wisdom of the world. We don't speak of the things the world thinks is smart. We don't speak the things that the people, the princes of this world, it says. The people that are in charge, the high and mighty folks, the people in leadership, the elected officials, the presidents, the kings, the, the doctors, the PhDs that try to make you feel inferior in intellect because they have all of these initials after their name or they hold a certain position as if fame, for some reason, equals intelligence. It doesn't. Paul says, this is the wisdom of the world that comes to naught. Someday, it's all going to be revealed how ridiculously stupid it was and how misguided we were to have followed it. First, First Corinthians 13, 18, and 19. I'm going to read that again. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seems to be wise in this world, let him become a fool, that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. We're back to that again. People look at Christian thinking and a Christian worldview. The fact that we believe that a man and a woman is marriage, that the fact that we believe that only women can have children, etc. People look at us if they are subscribing to worldly wisdom, like we are some uneducated or illiterate rube that doesn't know anything. And I suggest to you that it is it is their intelligence or their intellect or what they think is right and cultured that is erroneous. And that is what the Bible teaches us. Now, it also goes on and says that the wisdom that the world embraces serves as a barrier to spiritual growth and faith in Christ. You, you look at any of, of, of what we consider science and intelligence and philosophical today, and it goes against the Word of God, and we sit back and we wonder, have we done something wrong? Is there really something to all of this worldly wisdom? Are, are, is, it, is it the Bible that is ignorant? Is it, is it the Christian that is ignorant? You know, Paul goes on and he, he talks about the source of this type of, of thinking that is outside Christian thinking. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he says, In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who was in the image of God, should shine, uh, excuse me, should shine unto them. Well, Paul goes on and says, look, if you embrace this wisdom, it's going to alienate you from God. It is going to get you to question the truth that God has given you. And if you embrace that view, you are not going to grow in the faith. We, you know, we see a lot of that in, in churches that want to sign on to a lot of woke philosophy and theory that's being promoted out there. And you see that these churches just do not grow. And these pastors don't grow. And the people in their congregations don't grow. You know, Paul emphasizes in his writing that, that there are different worlds, different times. And, and, and Paul was clear that this present world is not our home. And this age is a passing age. And we, we just, we're transients in it. We're just passing through. Ephesians one twenty one says, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the world, that which is to come. And further in that epistle in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 21, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. And he makes a distinction here between this world and a world which is to come. The world which is to come will be a world without end. 
He goes on, he punctuates that with an amen. The point to be made in this, be heavenly mind, or excuse me, be eternally minded, be heavenly minded, not earthly minded. We're just passing through. We're just passing through. So we're not to be thinking like this. Paul says, don't think like them. Don't think like this present age. Don't embrace their philosophy. Don't embrace the wisdom of this world that is wisdom without God. It is a barrier to you in faith and understanding. And he goes on to what we should do. He says, but be ye transformed, he says. First of all, be not conformed. We've just explained all the things we're not to conform to or embrace. But Paul says, be ye transformed. And this word reaches much deeper than to conform or referring to an external form that represents inner essence, to outwardly manifest our inward state, that that of Christ or that of the indwelling Holy Spirit. It says to be transformed, to change into another form, to transform, to transfigure. You know, we see in Matthew 17 that Christ's appearance was changed and he was resplendent with divine brightness on the Mount of Transfiguration. Webster's defines transformed in theology to change the natural disposition and temper of man from a state of enmity to God and his law into the image of God or into a disposition and temper conformed to the will of God. He even uses Romans 12 verse 1 as his example. So in theology it says, do not have your thinking and your wisdom in, an, in a state or an adversarial state enmity with God and his law. Now, if we look at some of the stuff that's promoted on TV, in our media, in our movies, in our newspapers, and we see that it is 180 degrees opposed to the truth of God, we know it is the enmity of God. We find the truth of God in God's word. And what we find outside of that, that is in disagreement with that, is an enemy of God and his law. And Paul says, transform yourself, renew your mind, don't think like this. And we talked about confirmation. Now, transformation is a little bit different. And to, to show an external form of our inner essence. But it does take some work and cooperation on the part of the believer. Paul goes on and tells us how to do it. He first of all goes back and says, look, don't be conformed to what you think and have been told is smart and wise. It's not. It is foolish. God says it is foolish. If you truly want to be smart, you will embrace the foolishness of God. You will embrace the things that the world tells you, you really believe that? You are so uncultured and uneducated if you believe that. Well, Paul goes on and he says, well, how should we do it? And Paul says, by the renewing of your mind. Renewing. It comes from a Greek word to mean to cause to grow up. New, to make new. New strength and vigor to be changed into a new kind of life as opposed to the former corrupt state, Paul says. A renewal, to renew, to renovate. I like that word, to renovate, a complete change for the better. And Webster's defines renewing in theology to make new, to renovate, to transform, to change from, we'll go back to this word, enmity, to change from natural enmity to the love of God and his law, to implant holy affections in the heart, to regenerate, to change completely the way you think, to be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. It says in 2 Corinthians 4.16, For which cause we faint not? But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. And this is a daily expectation. And this makes a distinction between the outward and the inward man. And the outward man is, is the flesh part of us that's going to die. And the inward man is the spiritual part of us that will live forever, that we renew day by day. And Paul says it's a daily expectation. It takes effort. 
Just getting with God on Sundays doesn't get it done. You're missing out if that's the way you think. Think of your most fulfilling relationships and how fulfilling would they be if you only spent one hour a week with that person and then you ignored them the rest of the week. How would that go? How close would you be to that person? How well would you know what their priorities are? How, how well would you know, speaking of God, how well can you possibly know what God's plans are for you if you only get with him one hour a week? That's a fair question. In Colossians 3.10, Paul writes, And have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. The new man renewed in knowledge. Well, renew what? Well, this renewal is of the mind. Now let's, let's define the mind. Okay, biblically speaking, theologically speaking, the, the mind compro, uh, comp, uh, comprising alike the faculties of perceiving and understanding and those of feeling, judging, determining. The intellectual faculty, the understanding, uh, our reason, if we're going to narrow it down, as, as the capacity for spiritual truth, the higher powers of the soul, the faculty of perceiving and understanding divine things, the ability to recognize goodness and hating evil. And by the way, Christians are called to judge. To recognize the goodness of, uh, to recognize goodness and hate evil is to make a judgment. That'll be a podcast for an entirely separate day. But this is the power of considering and judging soberly. That's the issue with judging. Christians are called to judge, but you need to do it right. And you need to have a, a, a proper foundation on which to base your judgment. Calm and impartial. A particular mode of thinking and judging. Thoughts, feelings, purposes, and desires. When you renew your mind, you have to consider all of those things. And you have to compare it against a, a divine, unvacillating standard of comparison. Which the Bible teaches is the Word of God. It's what Paul teaches. Webster defines the mind, the intellect and intellect, uh, intellectual and intelligent power in man, the understanding, the power that conceives, judges, or reasons. If I can use a common vernacular, uh, vernacular our intellectual mainframes, our internal hard drives... Your computer processing unit, the thing that makes all of your thoughts and reasoning tick. Well, why do we need this daily renewing of our minds? Well, Paul gives us a lot of good instruction. We're going to go through a list. He tells us our minds can become corrupted if it's not renewed and submitted to the wisdom of God. Romans 1.28, and I think this is very indicative of our society today, which has long ago rejected God and his presence in virtually everything but your own church or in your own head. We don't want you to pray at school. We don't want you to pray at a football game. We don't want you, any, we don't want you to take your Bible out in a public place. Any number of things that you read about on the news... Well, Paul writes, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. That's in Romans 1.28. Go ahead and take a look at the rest of that chapter, Romans 1, after verse 28, and see all of the things that God has said, look, you want to reject God, and you want to reject his knowledge. There is a list of things that are going to follow in the wake of that rejection. It has consequences, and Paul is very, very specific about it. I invite you to go read it. Romans 1 chapter, uh, excuse me, Romans 1 verse 28 and following. Paul goes on and says, our minds can be shaken and troubled. We're human beings. We can be skittish. Things can make us scared. Things can make us uneasy. But Paul says, if you meditate on the word of God, if you depend on the word of God, 2 Thessalonians 2.2, 2, 
that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word. Paul says these things won't shake you. You know, I I don't get too concerned with what I read on the news. I I don't get intimidated by people that might think my my thinking is foolish. Oh, you actually believe the Bible? You actually believe this? You actually believe a guy came back from the dead? You actually believe that the Red Sea parted? Yeah, I believe all of that stuff. And I will not be moved. So I, I see a lot of things on the news. They, they don't bother me. And I kind of shrug my shoulders. And I see that they are uh, in, indicative of the times that we live in. And we are facing uh, the repercussions of the decisions that we have made collectively as a nation. Not individually, but collectively as a nation. So Paul says... Your mind can become corrupted, and you can be shaken and troubled if you are not careful, if you don't stay in that word, if you don't meditate on it. Paul goes on and says our mind is engaged constantly in a fierce battle for control of our bodies. Romans 7.23, Paul writes, But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. So Paul was saying, look, there is this battle going on between my outward body, which dies, and my renewed spirit inside my head, that there's a real conflict between carnal values and spiritual values. And Paul says, I fight all the time, and it wars against my members. So he goes on and he says, in addition to these things, that Unrenewed minds create divisions in the body of Christ. It creates divisions amongst Christians. You know, you see a lot of that. It, it's shocking to me that a Christian can get into an argument over abortion. And that's the, the result, in my mind, of an unrenewed mind. 1 Corinthians 1.10 says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you, but you be fit, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. If we are evaluating the Word of God truthfully, we ought to be in agreement. The fact that we're not means that we have some that are meditating on the Word and others that aren't, and that's going to create divisions. Paul says. But Paul does expect that we should understand that we have the mind of Christ. Now here we're back to judgment again. Okay. It says in 1 Corinthians 2.16, For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he, may have that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ, Paul says. No, we don't know the mind of the Lord, but he is giving us his mind. He's given of us his mind. Now we know that Jesus is going to come back and judge the world. We are most certainly responsible to judge between right and wrong, to judge between spiritual and carnal, to judge between biblical and unbiblical to judge between what is of God and, and, and what is of, of Satan, the adversary, the great spiritual adversary. He goes on and Paul writes, he says, empty minds darken our understanding as the Gentiles. If we reject this truth, if we fail to study it, Paul writes, this I say therefore and testify in the Lord, he says, Ephesians four seventeen and 18, that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. And he clarifies that. Don't walk in the vanity of their mind. Don't think like them. Their thinking is vanity. They've had having their understanding darkened, he said, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. That's a pretty that's a pretty deep description of the thinking that is outside the will of God. 
vanity of the mind. Their understanding is darkened, alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. But yet they think, if we go back to the beginning of the podcast, they think they are smart. Paul goes on and warns, our minds can be defiled. Titus 1.15, unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. Okay, I'm going to use an illustration. A lot of people here have a, de- have a device, have a computer, have a, an iPad, have an iPhone, etc. Uh, how frustrating is it when it doesn't act right, think right, or, or run right? Error messages you can't explain, pop-up ads you can't get rid of. And how many times have you scanned your computer or you've scanned your device to see a bunch of junk that has been installed or downloaded and it's been bogging down the system? Well, to make sure it runs right, we make sure the software isn't corrupted, that something hasn't gotten into the device to affect the way it thinks and operates. Do I have a bad version of Windows? Did I get a bad tablet? Is my software corrupted? You know, our devices, our electronic devices, our PCs, is only as good as the info that we install on it. And if the install is good, to focus our computer's thinking and protect it from corrupted intrusion, we install antivirus programs, spam blockers, pop-up blockers, etc. Anything else that's necessary to keep our computers on task and performing properly. And we don't just do this once. We install the updates to make sure all the software is up to speed so it will keep up with changing applications and emerging threats that they're always creating. We don't want to be distracted by spyware, pop-up ads, or lose interest in what we're doing. And our Christian lives are much the same way. Be careful what you download into your brain and how it affects the right thinking towards God, towards Jesus Christ, towards his revealed will in the Word of God. Well, Paul goes on and he says, well, there's, there's a reason that we do this. There's a reason that we don't conform ourselves to this world. There's a reason that we renew our minds to the right thinking. And he goes on and he says in that verse that you may prove, use that phrase, that you may prove. This is the why, that you may prove. Prove, what does it mean? To test, to examine, to scrutinize, to see whether a thing is genuine or not. To recognize as genuine after we examine it, to approve, to deem worthy. Webster's defines prove to evince truth by argument, induction, or reasoning. To deduce certain conclusions from propositions that are true or admitted. Boy, if we live in a society that doesn't do that, I should rephrase that. We most certainly live in a society that, that does that. We reach conclusions, we don't even look at the evidence. We look at what our mind tells us, and then we embrace it. And we're put into some scary places when we do that. Well, some examples of what proving is. Well, to test by test driving. Okay, Luke 419, oh, excuse me, Luke 1419 says, And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. Well, able to discern while in the middle of something. He's got five oxen. Are they any good? Are they going to work out? Let's take them out and see how they work. To test our internal motivations. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 8, I speak not by commandment, Paul says, but by the occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. To test ourselves, test yourself, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, examine yourselves, Paul says, whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? There will be times in your Christian life when you don't feel like one. You need to examine yourself all the time 
to make sure you're still in that faith. We do this to inspect our own motives and work. The things that we do, Galatians 6 verse 4, but let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. It's a springboard also to test all things to determine what is good. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 21 says, Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. This is why we reject the wisdom of the world. This is why we renew our mind into right thinking, so that we have the ability to test everything that comes into our path, comes into our lives, whether it's a trial, whether it's a whether it's truth, whether it's news, whatever it happens to be. God says, I've given you all of this to prove what's in front of you so that you might know the will of God. A renewed mind, let me say this, a renewed mind is necessary to be able to discern, evaluate, and prove. But Paul even goes on and further explains that. Prove what? We renew this mind to prove what? And I kind of touched on it here just a second ago, but we're going to go through it. What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul says you go through all of this so you can find out what is the perfect and acceptable will of God for your life. Good, from a Greek word to mean primary of good constitution or nature. And it's opposed to another Greek word which means uh, valuable or good or virtuous uh, for appearance. So we have an, an intrinsic and extrinsic quality here. The difference between intrinsic and extrinsic, outwardly good versus inwardly good. Something may look great, and inwardly it's corrupt. Anybody ever bite into a rotten apple? You get the sense of what I'm talking about. These two terms are opposed to each other. Okay, One means, oh, it looks good on the outside, but it isn't. And one means, it's good on the inside. It is virtuous. Let's look at Matthew 12, verses 33 to 35. And I, I will go and I'll mention what Webster said about good. Conformable to the moral law, virtuous, and applied to our actions. Okay? Matthew 12, 33 to 35. Either make the tree good and his fruit good. That's the extrinsic quality. Or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? That's intrinsic. Speaking good things. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks a good man out of the good treasure of his heart. That's the internal good. That's the intrinsic good. Brings forth good things that look good also outwardly. I'm paraphrasing the verse, but that's what it says. And an evil man out of the treasure bringeth forth evil things. Jesus is speaking in this text to outwardly religious people. These people were 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 getting it done. They were showing all the aspects of a religious person on the outside. And they were showing fruits of this, but Jesus pointed it out, the fruit's corrupt. It's not good on the inside. I want to look at another example. 1 Timothy 1, verses 5 through 8. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart, under a good conscience. That's the internal, on the inside. And of faith unfeigned, from which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good outwardly if a man use it lawfully. You know, there's people that go out and they preach the word of God and they preach it erroneously so that they look good and they sound good and that they sell books. 
or they have big audiences, etc. This is not the, 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 the kind of thing that we're talking about. What is lawful use of the law? It's the Greek word which means good on the inside. What's the purpose of the law? Paul said it was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The law is not about do's and don'ts, what we should do, what we shouldn't do. What happens to that law once one comes to Christ? Paul said Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes in Christ. And Paul drives home this point. And it's all through his theology. Now, he confronted legalism as strongly as he confronted anything else. And he emphatically said that you cannot perfect in your flesh, in your body, that which was begun by the Spirit. A human being cannot perfect on the work that God has begun and promised to accomplish in you. It's useless to try. And we should stop trying. Now, from God's perspective, you cannot get extrinsic goodness, so that which looks good on the outside, without first having goodness that is intrinsic of the inside. And I'll give the two Greek words. The first Greek word is kalos, which means the good that shows on the outside, as opposed to the agathos, which is the good that is from the inside. The agathos, the inside good, should be our focus, not the outward appearance. People can look great on the outside, and they are rotten to the core. So if you're trying to get this outward appearance of goodness to be acceptable in God's sight, you're mocking the grace of God. Okay, we talked about that in a previous podcast. You cannot earn God's favor. It is something that he gave to you. And as we talked about in the last podcast, you know, God has has given us his favor by his grace and that we ought to serve him out of gratitude, period. That's the end of it. Now, acceptable. Prove what is acceptable. Let's go back to that word. Well-pleasing, it's acceptable. Webster's defines it. That may be received with pleasure, hence pleasing to a receiver, gratifying as an acceptable present. And we talked about this a little bit last week, and I did things for my father to please him, not earn his affection. And that's the way we should give things to God. We're looking to please him. It's not because we want him to accept us. He has accepted us already, accepted us into beloved. Christ died for your sins. Ensured your place in heaven, we serve out of gratitude. We can't, we can't perfect on that. We can't perfect on earning something Christ has already earned for us. It's an insult to what God offered on your behalf. So let's look at our excuse me, intrinsic quality. Ephesians 5, 9 to 10. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. Now, did we get that? Go out and do good. Do right and follow truth. Well, how? Well, it says in that verse, by the fruit of the Spirit, that's a capital S. This is the yielding that we spoke about in the last podcast. We present our bodies to make it available to the Holy Spirit of God. Okay, that's the internal, as opposed to the flesh. Okay, the outward, the agathos as opposed to the kalos, the intrinsic as opposed to the extrinsic. And I want to remind you again, this is not works for salvation. We already have it. This is manifesting the works of God by voluntarily submitting ourselves to the Spirit of God. Perfect. An adjective, teleos, brought to its end, finished, to prove that acceptable, perfect will of God. Perfect. Wanting nothing. Necessary to completeness. That which is perfect. Webster's defined it. Finished. Complete. Consummate. Not defective. Having all that is requisite to its nature. In other words, you can't add anything to it. Matthew nineteen sixteen to 22 Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, 
Go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Now the man in this this scenario, he had everything. I invite you to go read that, Matthew 19, 16 to 22. He kept the law. He did all the things the law required, that text said. But what did Jesus say to him? He said it wasn't enough. But why did Jesus say this to him? Because it wasn't done as the end of the commandment, or charity out of a pure heart, good conscience, or faith unfeigned. This rich man was interested in looking good on the outside. Wasn't so much worried about his goodness on the inside. He had the wrong motivation. And we see this issue of willingness in Paul's teaching on giving as well. God loves the cheerful giver. The moment it becomes a duty, God doesn't want it. We don't serve God out of duty. We serve God out of gratitude. In Colossians 4.12, Paul writes, Epaphras, who was one of you, a servant of Christ, salutes you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect. That's human integrity and virtue, and complete in all the will of God. Let's look at the will of God for a second. You may prove that acceptable and perfect will of God. What is that? Will of God. What one wishes or has determined shall be done. That's what the will of God means. It comes from God. Well, the purpose of God to bless mankind through through Christ. What God wishes to be done in us. Commands, precepts, will, choice, inclination. A longer definition would be to will, have in mind, intend, to be resolved, to determine. This is all motivated by God. We need to to prove what is the acceptable and perfect will of what is will of God? What is God thinking? What does God want? What is what would God like us to do? What is God leading us to do? How do we understand that? Webster defines will as the disposition, inclination, desire. What is your will, sir? He says. But the emphasis is really on the sanctification process, which is the maturing of of a Christian to grow in the image of Christ. And with maturing in this process being key to understanding the will of God. And it applies to this issue of truth. In John 17, 16 to 17, Jesus says, They are not of the world. He's speaking of believers. Speaking of his apostles. Even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Not the contrary human philosophical wisdom that Paul says is foolish. That God has made foolish. So here we are again, this concept of being separate from this time and place and the method of sanctification, the Word of God. It's the Word of God that is meant to transform us. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And that word good comes from the agathos, the internal. The man of God gets into the word of God. He finds out what God's doctrine is. He lets God show him his error. He lets God correct him. He lets the Bible instruct him in righteousness. And then it says why? That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good, intrinsic, inside, on the inside, good works. So in our practical Christianity walk, we've learned that we serve God out of gratitude. And that we conform our minds and thinking to the image of God. That we reject the wisdom of this world. That we seek to reprogram ourselves from the wisdom of this world so that we might understand and know the will of God. And I'm going to issue that challenge. This comes from daily communion with God through His Word. I hope you learned something this week. Thank you for stopping by. God bless you. 
Thank you for listening to The Chaplain's Chair. If you enjoy the podcast, I invite you to leave a comment and review on the platform you're listening from, or visit www.thechaplainschair.com and leave a comment there on the Facebook page. And you can help grow this podcast by sharing it with your friends on your favorite social media platforms. And I thank you for your support.